So what I'd like to do is continue uh, last week's talk, and those of you who weren't here, what I've decided to do for the next uh, few next weeks, however long it takes, is to go through systematically through the entire Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse that the Buddha gave on the foundations of mindfulness, the establishing of mindfulness. And this uh, uh, discourse is the um, uh, is the foundational discourse for vipassana practice, for the insight practice that we do here. And there are many different schools, many different styles of teachings in insight meditation. And we are one particular one. And they all have their source in this particular text. It's an interesting text because it could well be the earliest instructions that exist in history of the development of mindfulness, development of awareness, cultivating awareness in this kind of way. So historically it has interest. And then the, and, and for Buddhists it has a, a very high level of importance. The, uh, the expression satipatthana, which is the satipatthana discourse on satipatthana, sati means mindfulness. And patana means something like, it's, it's a vague word, it doesn't have exact meaning. But it, it can mean foundation. It can also mean um, the establishing of something, the means by which you establish something. And so one way that's commonly now understood what this Satipatthana means is that it's the way to establish mindfulness. So the four Satipatthanas are the four ways of establishing the mindfulness. The other way of understanding this term is it refers to the four places that we establish mindfulness. So it's a very subtle difference perhaps, but one, the, four, four Satipatthana, the Satipatthana is the places where we establish mindfulness versus Satipatthana means the establishing of mindfulness. And the, 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 the vote of scholars is it means the establishing of mindfulness, the, the establishment of presence, the bringing mindfulness near. And this, I think this is somewhat important because what's important is that not so much what we pay attention to, though that's very important, but rather in paying attention, we are strengthening this muscle of mindfulness, this capacity of being presence our sense of presence becomes stronger and stronger. And as mindfulness becomes stronger and stronger, it feels like it's kind of strength within us, a kind of presence within us that we carry with us in many circumstances in our life. And it becomes kind of a ballast for us as we go about. We know ballast in the boat, the boat doesn't rock over so much, but pushed over by the wind. And so we have this ballast that holds us firm and steady. Then we're less likely to be pushed over by the winds of life and things that occur to us. So... So it's not so much about always learning how to see things in the world as it is building up this muscle that then you bring with you in all places. And here it says in this discourse that one of the ways to do this is to bring your attention to these four different domains of your human experience. And bring your, experience, your, uh, your attention to these different areas, you can develop your mindfulness, your presence. That's one way this is interpreted and understood. Within the text you find something like uh, 14, 15, 16, uh, 17 different exercises uh, of mindfulness, of attention. And it could be understood to be all together kind of a big package, you're supposed to practice in them all. Another way of understanding it is that these 17 different exercises uh, are just are gathering together of different meditative exercises that were used in the time of the Buddha that all have to do with mindfulness and then they'll gather together and, and you know, 
uh, held in this particular discourse. Scholars who study this discourse assume, some, some of them assume, that this, this, this discourse what didn't come out of the Buddha's mouth all at one time, but rather was kind of constructed from different elements of uh, what the Buddha had to say and then collected all together in one place to be kind of repository of the various teachings on mindfulness. Some of the some of the practices seem quite different from each other, and some of them have some common elements. The common element, which um, one common element among some of the exercises, is one that then has been carried through or adopted by our our particular tradition coming out of Burma, and that is using a form of practice which, which is called bare attention, which is simply seeing our experience in and of itself as it actually is without trying to do anything about it, without manipulating it, trying to make it go away, trying to improve on things, um, trying to judge things, but just bare attention, seeing things as they are without our interpretations, without our reactions to it, having that equanimity that just allows things to be. It's usually called bare attention. It's a very important word for our tradition. And so it's kind of like not doing anything, letting letting things be. Um, And uh, when I was first introduced to this practice, um, I really thought it was very Zen-like, and that in Zen practice I, I'd been doing it had very much the same uh, spirit of just le- letting things be and learning to accept things in an unconditional way, un- kind of radical way, as things were actually were. And what, if you pay much attention to your inner life, you find that much of our suffering, much of our distress in life, arises from some kind of um, uh, movement of not accepting how things are. And so to pull, to actually radically accept everything, to pulls the rug from underneath our non-acceptance. And it, since non-acceptance is kind of often the, kind of the foundation stone of much of our personality, much of our way we, act, we respond to the world, it changes our life, transforms our life dramatically if we can rest in this kind of radical acceptance. Um, so it's bare attention, just letting things be as they actually are. And so a number of these discourses, a number of these exercises have that spirit. When you breathe in, know you're breathing in. When you're breathing out, know you're breathing out. When you breathe out a long breath, know you're breathing out a long breath. When you're breathing in a long in when you're breathing in a long breath, know you're breathing in a long breath. There's nothing added to it. Just just the you know, the bare facts, just the bare attention to what the breath is like in the moment. Some of the exercises are more active, where you're actually trying to do something, or have an effect perhaps. And, and, and um, so, for example, with a breath meditation, one exercise, one aspect of breath meditation is breathing in, I calm my body. I calm the bodily formations. Breathing out, I calm the bodily formations. And that's not bare attention anymore. That's doing something. That's calming yourself. And so that's a whole other kind of way in which the practice is done. And so the tradition that I trained in ignored that part about trying to calm yourself. And I really got the message that you, couldn't, you weren't allowed to do anything when you did, when you did mindfulness practice. You, all you could do is note things, be aware of things as they were. You weren't allowed to change things or manipulate or try to develop yourself in some kind of way. And, um, um, but, the, but the book, you know, the, the discourse does talk about that, that aspect also. Um, also, this idea of bare attention, the way I learned it, was that you weren't supposed to be analytical. You weren't supposed to be looking for something particular. It was kind of unsystematic. It was kind of like just bare um, um, attention had a quality of choiceless awareness. We just at some point you can open your attention and become aware of whatever is arising in your experience. So if suddenly you're aware of a sound. If a sound arises, you're aware of body sensation. If a body sensation arises, 
you're aware of thought. When thoughts arise, feelings. When feeling arises, uh, choicelessly, but as they arise, you have to stay in the present moment, which is a whole development in itself to have that capacity. But once you have that capacity, then you're just kind of, you know, this choiceless awareness, whatever whatever arises. But some of the exercises are far from choiceless. Um, uh, one of them, uh, which we'll see today, is very directive. Pay attention to this, and then this, and then this, and this, and this, and this. You know, um, and they go through 32 steps of paying, paying attention very systematically. And um, so some of the exercises are like that. Um, some of them are more analytical, where you actually kind of look and try to understand your experience in a particular way. Some are more reflective. You see what's going on, and then you reflect in a certain way about your experience that you've had. You, you, you understand it through a certain perspective, a certain orientation. So there's a lot of different ways, that, a lot of different, these exercises, these 17 exercises, have different flavors, different ways that they're done. And then different traditions of vipassana have chosen these different styles of doing um, to be their emphasis. Some are more systematic, you, do, you know, one, two, three, four, five. Some are more analytical, some are more reflective, and some are more bare attention style. So I hope that, you know, so that's kind of the, kind of the background for uh, many different ways. So I'll read, uh, so last time I, I read the beginning of the text and I read the section on breathing. And now I'm going to read the section called The Four Postures. Again, a monk or serious practitioner, when walking, understands, I am walking. When standing, he or she understands, I am standing. When sitting, he or she understands, I am sitting. When lying down, he or she understands, I am lying down. Or he or she understands accordingly, however his or her body is disposed. That's the instructions. So it's pretty simple. It's taking very ordinary activities that we all do. We stand, we walk, we sit, and we lie down. Sometimes we dispose our body in other postures. But it's taking something incredibly ordinary. And it's saying, when you do these ordinary activities, be aware that you're doing them while you're doing them. Have a certain presence of mind while you're doing them that you know this is what's going on. Um, I repeat myself a little bit from what I said yesterday. Um, when I, sometimes when I sit down to meditate lately, my mind is not so settled. It's you know running all over. And I try to be present, try to you know be concentrated and be mindful of what's going on. But I find it a little bit hard because my mind wanders off so easily. And what I found very helpful for me is uh, to say the, the word here. Just that word. And I say it you know, in a kind of, kind of steady way, here, here. Just a reminder that here is where it's at. Here is where I'm supposed to be. Here, whatever is real is happening here. Whatever, is, you know, whatever I'm aware of that's not here belongs to the world of virtual reality. Belongs to thoughts, projections in the future, or memories of the past, or fantasies. But here, and that very simple way of saying here, cuts through very for me cuts through very quickly, relatively quickly, this tendency of the mind to wander off and be caught up in other events. I'm not trying to stop thinking, but when I say here, I notice oh, here is a human being who's thinking about what he's going to say tonight for a dharma talk. You know, here is someone who's thinking about how to get the car smog-checked. Here is, you know, someone's thinking about what to do for dinner. You know, here. 
So this is what's happening. And I like the wow perspective that comes when you remember, or you reflect, uh, that it took five billion years of evolution for reality to come to you thinking about how to get this object. Five billion years. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? Whatever your thought is, whatever your thought is right now, it took five billion years for you to have this thought, this reaction, this feeling. I mean, it's, it's a lot of stuff that had to happen. You know, to build, you know, all of evolution and everything had to build, and you had this capacity to think about pizza. It's amazing. So sometimes it's here. I found just so here the Buddha is saying, when you're walking, know you're walking. Now some people might react to this and say, This is a pretty pedestrian <laughs> spiritual practice. This is a pretty poor, you know, you know, I could be contemplating the great union with the cosmos, I could, you know, have great love affair with God, I could do all these wonderful things that people, spiritual people do. And here, you know, you're, all your neighbors are doing these great spiritual things and they ask you, what's your spiritual practice? When I walk, I know I'm walking. And, um, but when you walk, we walk. And to know it. There's a Zen story, which I try to recall, where um, the Zen master sends his disciples into town uh, to um, buy um, potatoes or something, rice, for the monastery. And um, when they, I think they, they, they're each given a bicycle and they ride home carrying it on the, on the bicycle. And, and he asks, uh, when each of them comes back, what are you doing? And one of them says, oh, when I went to town, I went to got rice for the monastery to bring it back so the other monks could eat. Someone else came back and said, oh, I went, to the, I went to town so that um, because I was ordered to go. And I had better things to do, but I had to do it, so I did it. And someone else said, I went to town because uh, my dedication is to save all beings. And here, by bringing rice back to the monastery, I can save, I can, you know, people can eat and they can meditate and we can save all beings. It's really wonderful. And then they went through this for a number of disciples. And the seventh one said, you know, he's asked, what are you doing? And the guy said something like, um, I'm just, you know, something very simple. He said something like, uh, I'm just bringing rice back from, the, from town to the monastery. So I didn't really get it right. But <laughs> but, um, but they did. Then the Zen master said, uh, oh, that's the one who should be the next abbot. The one who just kind of was very simple. This is what's happening in the moment. No interpretations, no overlays. Just this was happening. No reactions, just accepting this moment as it actually is. And if you just try to be aware of the fact that you're walking or standing or sitting or lying down when you're doing those activities, probably you'll notice very quickly how much of the time you're not really paying attention to that. I mean, you kind of know you are, but to really know it, to really be there for that in the same way that I say, here, here I am. Here I am sitting. Here I am sitting. Just being in that experience of sitting. Being here in the experience of walking. Um, so this is the, first ex- the second exercise after the breath. And these two exercises, the breath and these exercises in the posture, is so basic and so simple to the human life. And here we're using some of the most basic elements of human life to cultivate our capacity to be present, to be here. I like to reflect on sometimes how um, significant the present is, the present moment is. And there's wonderful books now talking about this, like The Power of Now, some book that people love. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, The Power of Now, now, what is now? What is the... Some people like to point out that the only thing that's really real in life is your present moment experience. The past is real enough, 
but it's in a real, it's real only in the sense that it's thoughts in the present moment. It's kind of like a virtual reality. You know, and we know that memories sometimes are inaccurate. Or psychologists and therapists, psychologists and anthropologists and sociologists and historians all have come to the conclusion that all memories are inaccurate. And they tend to change and develop over time and new, new, new information or new interpretations or whatever. And, um, and plans about the future are also virtual reality. How many times have you, have you planned carefully what's going to happen tomorrow? And tomorrow is completely different. Something happened that, you know, changed it all. And fantasies is a virtual reality. And many people live in the world of past and future and fantasy. And they t- sometimes we take the world of thoughts and ideas and the world of past and future as being more real than what is really real, what is here. And, uh, and sometimes the mind can get very claustrophobic from this, uh, you know, getting caught up in the virtual world of thoughts and ideas and fantasies and plans and thoughts and all this. And to just simply know you're walking when you're walking is cutting through that, is returning you to something which is very primary and I think something which is really real. To find out what's real. One of my Zen teachers, uh, when he was a young college student and first introduced to Zazen, Zen meditation, um, he was his first session or two of sitting Zazen and um, he was in excruciating pain the whole time. Because in Zen you have to sit you know, you know, still, not move, and for 40 minutes. And if you never sat before, you're le- he's, he was kind of athletic and so it's probably his hamstrings were tight and it was really painful for him. And, um, but he was hooked from then on. He hasn't stopped sitting since. And they said the reason was for the first time in his life he felt real. He felt there was something real. And for him, because of who he was, you don't have to do it, do it because you're all different, I hope. But uh, for, uh, it was only in contact with something, with a pain, that he could cut through so much of his thoughts and ideas and illusions about things and contact something he knew it was real, was the pain. John Travis, another teacher, some many of you know, tells a story of uh, being somewhat disassociated from life for various reasons, and very, kind of psychologically disassociated from too, many, too much acid and trauma in his life, and, um, and ending up in Nepal. And his teacher that he was studying with uh, flew up to some monastery you know, high up in the Himalayas, and he went, wanted to go be with him, and there wasn't enough space in the plane to go for him to go along. So his teacher, uh, so he was going to walk there, and so his teacher gave him the instructions when he walked up the mountain to the where he had to go over many days, that uh, to keep his attention in his feet as he walked. And so he's walking up these mountains, and he was trekking, right, and just keeping his attention in his feet, in his feet, in his feet. And that contact with reality, contact with something real, you know, when you walk like that, cut through, I think, so much of his tendency to be disassociated, to be lost in thoughts that it was kind of meeting the, what's real, being with what's real. It was a very, very significant experience for him. So you shouldn't under, underestimate, it. I would say, the tremendous power of bringing presence and awareness to these very simple activities while you're doing them. What you might find as you do it is that you're better off. Just like uh, you know, turning the radio off in your car when you drive. I find it very interesting because, uh, not so much anymore, but... Um, there used to be a time when I turned the radio on automatically and it brought a certain kind of pleasure or a certain kind of something to me to listen to the radio. And, um, and if I didn't turn on the radio, sometimes I felt this compulsion turned on. I kind of, this lawyer inside my head would be telling me, you know, you'd be better off listening to it. You have to know what's going on in the news or, you know, whatever. And, um, 
And what I found was that if I kept it off and overcame the kind of compulsion, not didn't act on it, that by the end of the trip, by being just silent with the radio, I'd be more present and more relaxed and more settled than if I'd listened to the radio. The radio gave me more pleasure in a sense, but it also kept me more agitated. So you probably find if this very simple exercise of knowing that you're walking when you're walking, really knowing, and not just kind of, you know, if you walk for 10 minutes knowing it, you know, at the first moment you start walking, oh, I'm walking now. But the whole time, I'm walking. This is what's happening. I'm walking. I'm here. There might be all kinds of reservations about how useful this is. You might find sounds, feel stupid doing it because you can think about great lofty things. But it's kind of like the radio. If you keep it up for a while, you probably find that your mind, your body gets more collected, more settled. And the sense of presence becomes stronger. And you come into the next activity you're going to do with a greater sense of presence and awareness. Um, so that's for you to find out whether that's true. And I'd encourage you to try it. Try the simple thing for the next week. When you're walking, really know that you're walking. Be there with, as you walk. In, um, uh, from the time of the Buddha, and there's records in the discourses of this, um, Buddhists have done walking meditation. The last person to be enlightened in the lifetime of the Buddha became enlightened doing walking meditation. Isn't that great? He didn't sit there stoically in meditation posture. He was doing walking meditation. So uh, just you know, it's possible to do med- walking meditation as you walk. And I've, I sometimes love doing it, walking through the city sometimes, just getting into the, the flow of just doing walking meditation. It has a different feel than kind of walking in a meditation hall, but it's a lovely thing to do. So that's the second exercise. It's 8.50. Do you want to discuss this, ask questions, or should I go on to the next exercise? What would you like to do? <laughs> How many of you are indifferent? How many of you are indifferent? <laughs> How many want to go home? There's a lot of merit. You guys are getting a lot of merit for sitting through a discourse, a discussion, a talk on the, this, this, this particular discourse. You wouldn't even, you can't even imagine how much marriage you're getting. Does that mean we get another precious human rebirth? At least. So, um, again, this is the third exercise. A bhikkhu, or a serious practitioner, is one who acts in full awareness when going forward or returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending his or her limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing his or her robes and carrying his or her robes and bowl, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating or and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. So here again we find the exercises to pay attention to these very simple exercises, very simple activities of normal life. And here we get into a little more detail uh, in full awareness when going forward and returning, going somewhere and coming back. And this might be referring to walking meditation, going back and forth, but you know, it doesn't have to. Uh, using, when we use our eyes, looking forward and looking away. Whatever we're doing, 
Be aware of what you're doing with your eyes when you, when you pay attention to your eyes. It's one of the very difficult areas of mindfulness for many people is to really be attentive to seeing when you're seeing. Um, maybe, I don't know how many of you knew uh, Charlotte Selver, but Charlotte Selver died, I think, last week, last Friday. And uh, she was this person who would uh, take a group, a group like you and spend an afternoon um, giving you a piece of paper like this and then teaching you how to pick the paper up. You might, might have assumed you knew how to pick a paper up. And you'd the whole afternoon just picking it up and you'd pay attention to all the things that went into picking up the piece of paper. And she would uh, do exercises with people's eyes. You know, just very simple thing, just looking. Looking at a piece of paper, looking at a ball. And spend hours just looking. And it's called sensory awareness practice. And um, she became a darling, or very, very much appreciated by the San Francisco Zen Center, kind of adopted by Zen Center. And they loved what, uh, what she brought to the Zen practice, the world. There's very simple awareness, learning how to do this in a very simple and direct way. And, the subtle details of it. I remember I um, met one woman who studied with, in the tradition of Charlotte Silver, and she said they'd spend hours just moving one finger, just really being there. So it's kind of a mindfulness exercise, right? But looking, uh, bringing attention to our eyes, and how do you use your eyes? And it's a whole world to discover there. Uh, when flexing and extending one's limbs. I remember being in, um, in Burma and uh, being in talks with Upandita, Night after night, we had these talks. And um, all these monks, all the people, they were very intent and very serious about their practice. And it was time to um, scratch an itch. And you see someone next to me, go. Now, uh, practicing full awareness doesn't mean you have to be that slow. <laughs> but uh, they were very, you know, they're going to really be present for this activity. You know, moving the arm, being really present. Um, so flexing and extending one's arms, limbs. When acting full awareness when wearing one's clothes and carrying one's robes and bowl or purse around. When goes in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food. What's the difference between eating and con- drinking and consuming food? Maybe it means like digesting it. So when you're, as you're digesting it, you stay present for that experience, maybe. And tasting. And this is one of the great delights for some people to go on retreats, is to eat in silence and really eat and do mindfulness of eating as you eat. It's one of the great things to do. Um, and uh, sometimes people get into it too much. They spend like two hours at the, you know, eating a meal and the, the people are cleaning up afterwards and, you know, and the restaurant's closed and they're still, you know. But... Um, but just very slow eating and just really being there and being very attentive to what's going on. It's a, it's a way of developing mindfulness. It's also a way of, of, of appreciating one's food. It's also a way of beginning to understanding the complicated way, relationships we have with food, many of us, with our hunger and our appetite and our greed and our, all these things. And, uh, and to learn a kind of a different kind of sensitivity to the needs of the body, to the impulses coming from the body. So, and I'd recommend it to any of you to spend you know, at least one meal this week um, really alone, and, and uh, or at least in silence. Don't eat. Don't have the radio or television on, or whatever you do. And just you and the food, and offer that food. Like, I mean, like, you know, it's like I don't know if this is the best example for a Buddhist group, but like this was like this really great wine from 1860 that someone discovered in your cellar, and 
you know, it's like this is the only one left, and you know, and whatever. And um, and so you don't, you're not going to just kind of gulp it down, but you're going to really be there and savor it. But you eat your meal that way. Take one meal, see what it's like. Um, and then defecating and urinating. Imagine in Buddhism, pissing and shitting <laughs> is a formal meditation practice. Someone asks you, you know, what's your meditation practice? <laughs> and then you say, well, I shit and piss. And they say, well, I do too. And you say, but do you really pay attention when you're doing it? Are you really there for it? <laughs> or you're reading that literature there in the toilet next to the toilet. You know, some people have all this literature next to the toilet and they don't pay attention or whatever. And um, so full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep. It's very, I find it very interesting to pay attention as I fall asleep. Some people have told me they can notice the moment of falling asleep and the no- moment of waking up. And I've tried and tried and tried. You know, I've practiced for so many years and I've had great practice at times. And um, I can, you know, I, I'm, at some point I wake up. <laughs> I'm laying there, I'm paying attention, and then I wake up. And, <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> so, well, um, but it's very nice to do it. And uh, it also, I think, I, I believe that paying it, being mindful as I fall asleep, and I sometimes, sometimes like doing loving kindness as I fall asleep, and a little relaxation actually as I, as I fall asleep, I think it actually helps the sleep, kind of it lends itself to deeper sleep. And waking up, pay attention. When talking, be mindful when you're talking, full awareness while you're talking. This is probably one of the most difficult places for people to pay attention. And uh, I hope many of you went to Donald Rothberg's day long on speech. And um, uh, we tend to, uh, many of us tend to be kind of addictive when we speak and kind of get lost in our words and our fears and concerns. And to really be present as we speak and to know you're speaking when you speak and to know what's happening within you as you speak is a wonderful art to develop. Saves a lot of uh, suffering. And then keeping silent. And... um, so here in this exercise, in the first and ex- second exercise, it says, one understands I am walking. When standing, one understands I am standing. When um, sitting down, one understands one is sitting down. The word is understands. And this is usually understood to be a very simple, very obvious. You know, when I'm walking, I'm obviously walking. This is what's happening. In the next section, it says, one acts in full awareness. And this is a very important word, sampajana. And sometimes uh, translated into English as clear comprehension. And this is more than just kind of understanding kind of this is what I'm happening, but an understanding with some depth, with some clarity, with some fullness, with some penetration of what's actually happening at the present moment. So when walking, you understand some, with some depth what you're doing when you're walking. And so there's a range of things you can understand that add some depth to that understanding. One is... Uh, that's talked about in the text is you understand how the impermanent nature of the experience, uh, of the sensations that build up that experience. You understand the um, uh, different aspects of your of uh, your conditioned life that come together to make this experience happen. Walking is a gross umbrella term, category term, for a whole series of things that are going on. You know, the toes are pushing off, the foot is pushing off the ground. 
you're tightening up your calves a little bit and um, and you're swinging your leg forward by the knee and a little bit by the hip and then you're touching the ground and your arms are swinging and different things are going on happening with your hips and your shoulders and so all the stuff that happens when you're walking to, to have full awareness is to begin, begin looking under the surface of the, of the kind of general idea and getting a sense of what's really going on in the details of it that's one understanding and with full awareness is to kind of be there and really kind of delve into this experience in a deeper way but full awareness also has the meaning uh, in the tradition of understanding um, um, uh, the context a little bit of what you're doing. So kind of it's a little bit reflective perhaps. What's the intention? Uh, what's the purpose of what you're doing right now? Why, why are you walking when you walk? Why are you talking when you talk? Now there, if you paid attention to nothing else for a month, of why you say what you say when you're saying it, you'll be a transformed person by the end of the month. I guarantee it. If you track all your talking and really understand why you're saying it, you know, really understand why you're saying it, not, you know, first impressions of why you're saying it. And then, um, and then also the, what's called the suitability of purpose, to know, is this really a suitable thing to do right now? Is this the right thing to do in this context, to say this thing or to do this activity? And so there's a variety of things we understand kind of the context of what we're doing, kind of bring understanding to the situation. So full awareness, Sampajana, has a variety of meanings in the tradition. And, um, but it's, it's more than just simply understanding the bare experience in and of itself. And this is using the mind's abilities to discern, to look deeper, to, uh, to reflect on the experience. In different, di- in different ways of doing the exercise, we do different ones of these kinds of things. Um, using more of our intelligence as we're there, involved in this activity. In both of these exercises, the, the, after the description of the exercise, it ends with uh, this uh, wonderful, what I think is wonderful, uh, sent, uh, sentence. And the person abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This too is how a bhikkhu, a monk, abides contemplating the body as a body. A little bit, you can do that. Yeah. That's great. So, 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 if that's your experience, it's fine. And so then you have, what you have to do is start with where you're at, how your experience is, and work with that. Work with that. So, if, uh, so for you, perhaps, you want to uh, think about what, why you're going to say what you're going to say before you talk. <laughs> Take a moment, pause. And, uh, or say to your friend, excuse me for a moment while I you know, think about what to say next. And you know, <laughs> and you know what you're going to say next, but you're just reflecting on why you're going to say it. And, um, but it's possible as, uh, as this, uh, this muscle of mindfulness and presence gets stronger and stronger, um, uh, the intention to speak, the purpose of why we're speaking, uh, our reactions, our responses, are all happening kind of at the same time. And as the mindfulness becomes larger and more encompassing, more inclusive of different things, you can actually be aware of more things going on at the same time. When you're, so you can be aware of, uh, you know, 
talking while you're talking. You can be aware of various things while you're talking. And, um, and um, yeah. Yeah. So, so you're saying that the, 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 once we start paying attention to anything, it opens up to a whole universe of deeper and deeper experience. Right. And so the idea that it could be complete is uh, oxymoron because it can never be complete. It keeps opening up more and more. Yes. The translation here is uh, full awareness. And uh, it might be a poor choice. The word in Pali is uh, sampajana. Sometimes it's translated as clear comprehension. And sometimes it's translated as alertness. And, um, you know, different, translated in different ways. And... Um, and uh, I don't know if it's meant to be kind of a once and final, you know, understanding of everything, but rather, um, I mean, the important thing here is not so much the, I mean, the, the, the first thing that we're trying to do with this, this, these exercises is to develop our capacity to be aware, develop our mindfulness, our presence, and using our intelligence to kind of probe deeper and our penetrative ability of awareness to look deeper into the experience is one of the ways we strengthen this muscle. So that's one thing we're doing. And we can see deeper and deeper into the experience. Uh, maybe there's no end to it, but uh, there is an end for Buddhists. And that is... <laughs> you can <lean> that way. <laughs> um, thank you. There, uh, there, there is... Um, uh, in, in, in this kind of tradition of Buddhism, the end is not in understanding the world. The end comes when you... Uh, uh, when any cl- clinging to the world has been let go of. And that's the purpose of this practice. The sentence I've ended with, one, ab- one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That's the end of the practice for Buddhists. Uh, there's no end to being a scientist. There's no end to which things can open, open up, open up. But as we deepen this, deepen this practice, what we become aware of is our relationship to the experience of the world. We become aware of where the mind is clinging to the experience or resisting it. And then we find the place where the mind stops doing that. And then when the mind stops doing that, that's the springboard for liberation. Does that make sense? Does that respond to your, your concern? You know, so some, some attachments uh, some attachments you shouldn't get rid of right away. <laughs> so, you know, if, it, if, if, if you're using it for the purpose of being more present and going deeper, just go with that attachment for a while. And sooner or later, you'll realize the limitation of that attachment. And then you'll want to get, 
you want it, you want to let go of it. But, you know, that day, that day will come. But in the meantime, you know, it's kind of propelling you forward a little bit. It could be good. So thank you. So you all have been now assigned very simple tasks to do. And I hope you enjoy it all. <laughs>